Welcome to the No Shame on You podcast, where we talk to mental health professionals, educators, and advocates. No Shame on You is a 501c3 organization dedicated to eliminating the stigma associated with mental health conditions and raising awareness. Our goal is for people who need help to seek it, for family members and friends to know how to provide proper support and to save lives. Welcome to the No Shame on You podcast. This is Wendy Singer, Executive Director at No Shame on You. And we have an incredible guest speaker today um, that we'll introduce in a moment. But first, I'm going to introduce our co-host today, Julie Bayaskalan, who is a graduate student at Northeastern University and the No Shame on You intern this year. And we're thrilled to have her. And today we are meeting with an incredible man who is a visionary and the future of um, really honed into the future of mental health support and treatments. Um, I want to introduce today Bruce Seawick. Bruce um, has been interested in mental health and the exploration of altered states of consciousness for decades. Um, And he'll tell you a little bit more about that background. He is also the retired CEO of Layden Family Services and Mental Health Center in Franklin Park, Illinois, and the SHARE program in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. He retired in July of 2022 after working there for 26 years. He's now the associate professor and coordinator of the CRSS Success Grant at the College of DuPage, where he has worked for 20 years in the Human Services Department. He has been lecturing on the therapeutic use of psychedelics for over 25 years and has taught a class in psychedelics called Psychedelic Mind View at the College of DuPage. And um, I just want to make a note that this podcast and the content of it um, is for educational purposes only. Um, We're not advocating for the use of psychedelics, but encourage you um, to learn more here today, do your own research, consult with your own doctors and physicians, um, and, and more. So Julie, welcome as my guest co host. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you, Wendy. I'm excited to be here today. Awesome. Well, we're excited to have you working with No Shame on You, and thank you for hooking up us with um, Bruce Seawick. So, Julie, how about you take it away? Okay. Start us off. So, Bruce, let's start with you telling us a bit about you and your background. Sure. Um, My interest in psychedelics actually started when I was an undergraduate at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Uh, At that time, uh, psychedelic therapy was legal. Uh, LSD psychotherapy was listed. It was uh, a chapter in my introduction to a psychology textbook. Uh, And so I was, it was, at that time, there was a lot of excitement about psychedelics uh, being, uh, as as they used to say then, I think it was Stanislav Grof that said it, it was to the psychologists uh, as the telescope is to astronomers. You know, it, it, is, it, gives, it can give an incredible insight uh, into uh, the psychology of the person. Um, in addition to my uh, textbook that included LSD psychotherapy, 
uh, one of the other books that were included was The Teaching of Don Juan by Carlos Castaneda. And this is a very interesting book because uh, the author purports to document events that took place in an uh, apprenticeship as a shaman with a self-proclaimed uh, Indian shaman, Don Juan Mateus from Sonora, Mexico, between 60 and 65. And so the idea that powerful plant medicines could be used for spirituality, uh, healing, and self-knowledge uh, quite literally blew my mind. Uh, and so that is uh, what was what started my interest in psychedelics. And, you know, I read a little bit about your background before you came on, Bruce. Um, tell us why you're interested in mental health and, you, you know, you're a little bit more about that story. Well, you know, as is kind of an adjunct to the interest. I mean, the study of psychedelics is essentially the study of consciousness. And so when you're interested in consciousness, it kind of takes you into the mental health realm because why are some people mentally healthy and why are others not? What drives people to addictive behaviors uh, and so forth? So uh, it, kind of, it kind of dovetails and comes together uh, you know, in many ways, it's the intersection of many disciplines. It's It can be a spiritual perspective, uh, a psychological perspective, uh, and, um, it, you know, it ultimately answers the ultimate question, I think, uh, it, the exploration through psychedelics. And it's kind of like, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of your life? And it's finally now in the psychedelic renaissance, as you mentioned in the introduction, I've been lecturing on psychedelics since I wrote my thesis in 1996, uh, Psychedelic Assisted Therapy for the Terminally Ill, uh, with the assistance of uh, the Executive Director of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, uh, as my mother was dying of uh, colon cancer. And uh, I researched then, it took me a year to get it together, but I researched a lot of what was done to, to treat people that were dying and, and our perspective on dying. And psychedelics gives you a little different way of looking at it because some of the psychedelic experiences that one that it might uh, facilitate is a death rebirth experience. So in a sense, you get a chance to practice death. Uh, and there is also uh, the possibility of an ego death where you are not who you um, think you are. You become like a little dot in the universe and you have to kind of work through that as part of the process. Interesting. So when you switched careers, I believe you're in, in some sort of engineering field. Is that right? Sales. I was in sales. I, I actually sold semi-trailers, uh, if you can believe that. My last job of note, I worked for General Electric, and uh, and and they paid for graduate school. So I, I basically got my master's degree in psychology uh, through working for General Electric, and then I, I I changed careers and ended up working at a community mental health center, which uh, was the best ex one of the best experiences of my life because you're dealing with the poorest people that need the most help, uh, and the agency that uh, I ended up being the CEO for uh, has been around for uh, a long time and helped a lot of people, and uh, we were into like the third generation of of people that we were helping, so. Um, amazing, amazing career. Life is not linear, Bruce. Life is not linear. And you're a great example of that and finding your passion. Um, when you, w was there a light bulb that went off um, 
when your mom got sick that you wanted to kind of marry, explore the, the connection between mental health and psychedelics? Is that, is that what happened or was it another yes. time? Yeah. It, you know, I, I was interested in psychedelics and we'll talk a little bit more about why it went uh, off track. But as my mom was dying of cancer, I remembered some of the early research and I had referenced this in our previous conversation uh, that started in uh, Chicago in 1964, not started in Chicago, but took place uh, treating uh, treating pain and treating the dying by looking at a psychedelic LSD in particular as an analgesic and, and a side effect of taking LSD depending on the dose uh, is it can facilitate a mystical experience. So it didn't relieve pain in the sense of like an aspirin for a headache, but the, if the if you were if the uh, LSD experience facilitated a mystical experience, uh, it gave you a different perception of death and kind of more hope for being part of the larger picture. So as as my mom was dying and I know her time was limited, uh, I started to uh, research that and then I proposed to uh, Roosevelt University to do a my master's thesis on it, uh, which actually took some convincing then because this was 1996. And there was still a lot of, as Rick Doblin refers to it, it's like the bad acid trip of the 70s was still pervasive. So I actually had to go to the uh, people that were on the thesis committee and uh, kind of put them on the spot that this was a library paper. This was, you, you know, there's no way to do research when it was illegal. And then they approved it. And it actually became my entree into the field because that was my uh, street credibility having this uh, thesis. And the first thing that I did uh, that started and launched my career, uh, my psychedelic academic mentor is Dr. Tom Roberts, a professor emeritus from uh, uh, NIU that retired. Uh, he had me speak in his class on psychedelics. Actually, uh, the class that I was teaching at COD is kind of a franchise in many ways because he gave me all his material and uh, helped me look at a way of teaching uh, psychedelics in a university setting. And it kind of launched me uh, into my career. And uh, here I am, you know, over 25 years later, uh, when I was initially lecturing on it, I had to be very careful of how I identified myself. Uh, ironically, uh, I remember asking the first CEO of Leiden Family Service, I was the third, by the way, if when I lectured on psychedelics, I could identify as working at uh, the agency. And he said, absolutely not. He didn't want to be associated with psychedelics. That was the, that was not so much him, but it was the time. And then by the time I retired, I was lecturing as the CEO of Leiden Family Service in the SHARE program uh, on psychedelics. So that was, uh, for me, it was very gratifying because it's not about, and it never has been about uh, the recreational use of uh, drugs, uh, psychedelics in particular. It is about the spiritual use of for spiritual growth, uh, personal growth. Uh, so, uh, you know, the irony of, of, the, of the whole movement is that despite the fact that it was they were made illegal and scheduled as a Schedule One, uh, the recreational use never stops. So the war on drugs, the longest run failed war in American history, was an abysmal failure because it didn't stop what it was intended to stop. Uh, and the sad part is the research stopped. And when you think about it, and Rick Doblin has, speaks about it. Uh, how many lives could have been saved if the research had continued and they had reclassified, they, if they had to classify 
uh, psychedelics, they could have classified it for medicinal use instead of having no, and putting it in the same category as heroin, uh, for example. Mm -hmm. So Bruce, I know you mentioned something that was interesting earlier that at one point, psychedelics were legal. Mm -hmm. And it's not now, today. And why is that? Can you educate educate sure. us a bit on the history of psychedelics and why it was demonized in society? So, so psychedelics in their natural form, in their as plant medicine, has been used for you know thousands of years. I was looking at a psychedelic timeline, and it goes it, it goes back thousands of years. They have a, a long history of spiritual uh, and ritualistic use throughout the world. Um, when psychedelics were discovered by the West, we were unaware of the proper context to use them in. So coupled with the fact that alongside of early research, the government the U and the US military was very interested in psychedelics for mind control. They looked at the use of psychedelics as a way to have bloodless warfare and to be able to use in brainwashing uh, there were programs such as uh, MK Ultra that were using LSD, testing it on uh, unsuspecting people to see what their reactions were in the hopes that this could be used instead of bombs. But it what that caused was for it to be released on the street, uh, and it hadn't been uh, previous to that. So they, in in many ways, were responsible for it getting on the street, and they created the problem that they tried to put the genie back in the bottle on, uh, bottle in. So um, the, the anti-war and civil rights movement, and I was there uh, at that time, created an opportunity uh, for the government, in this case, Richard Nixon, to target these movements because they were considered anti-American uh, by targeting the drug of choice. So if you want to target a culture and not appear to be culturally or racist or insensitive, uh, you can target their drug of choice. So uh, it was a way to incarcerate uh, people in the movement without appearing insensitive and racist. And recently, uh, Don Baum, who was, um, uh, excuse me, uh, John Ehrlichman was interviewed by Don Baum. Uh, John Ehrlichman was Nixon's domestic affairs advisor and White House counsel. So he actually, in an interview, stated this, and I'm going to read it because this gives you an this gives you the exact reason why psychedelics were demonized. So this is a quote: the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies: the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or against black. But by getting the public to associate hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt these uh, communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. So this was a 2016 interview uh, by Richard Nixon's domestic affairs advisor. So he created then uh, the, the scheduling process, I mean, not him directly, and put the drugs that we were talking about in Schedule 1, and then it gave the government and police 
uh, it gave them the permission to jail people, put them, you know, put them in jail and kind of derail the movement. So that that was kind of the irony that was not based on science. It was a political thing that was done that continues to this day. And one of the things that we are going to find out probably this summer is what the government is going to do about MDMA uh, assisted psychotherapy and treating PTSD. Now, MAPS has been on the forefront of that. Bruce, uh, real quick, what does yes. MDNA mean? M MDMA. For... So, that, so that is, uh, that is, you know, the the. I would have to read off what it stands for, but MDMA is the pure chemical that has a street slang of ecstasy or Molly. But Got be it. aware that the street drugs are not what we're talking about. We're talking about pharmaceutical, pharmaceutically pure drugs. So MDMA is, uh, in general, it's a psychedelic, but uh, we consider it an empathogen, uh, an impactogen. It's a drug that makes you makes people very uh, empathic, uh, kind of very opening, uh, kind of opens up your heart. So uh, the the research that has been done the uh, last couple of de decades have been so efficacious that the government is now aware of the fact that it has tremendous potential when used in a controlled setting uh, under the supervision of an expert uh, to relieve the symptoms of PTSD. Uh, the, the research shows that uh, in many of the studies, uh, at least two thirds of the people after a three session uh, regimen did not no longer met the DSM criteria for uh, PTSD. So there is no good reason to continue the charade of this sending the wrong message to our kids, which was never the real reason uh, that these things were scheduled like that. It's always been about politics. Uh, and we're talking about some very powerful uh, medicine that can be used both for good and evil. Bruce, you mentioned um, MAPS a couple of times. Can you mm -hmm. explain to our audience what that stands for and what that is? So MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Uh, I've, I have uh, the utmost respect for MAPS. There's three big funding bodies. MAPS is uh, the one uh, that has been behind the MDMA research. Rick Doblin, the executive director of MAPS, is from Chicago. And when I was... Uh, proposing my thesis, I sent an email to MAPS, uh, and Rick actually met me the next time he came to Chicago to visit his parents because he had moved away, and uh, he opened up the archives of MAPS and uh, enabled me to write my thesis. So they are a funding body that has gone public uh, and is very involved in uh, the use of psychedelics as medicine and also education uh, about psychedelics, and they're the ones that have been driving the train to uh, for MDMA assisted psychotherapy uh, to treat PTSD. Bruce, what kind of mental health disorders or issues are psychedelics good for, and which ones are they are best to avoid it, according to your wisdom and research? Well, the thing that you have to be aware of is that the when the psychedelic research started. Uh, there was no government backing of it. I mean, in the resurgence, there was initially, and then after the war on drugs started, and it costs a lot of money, you know, uh, which pharma, uh, you know, pharmacological companies have. So it costs a lot of money to do the studies. So a lot of what we're looking at is the result of 
you know, kind of anecdotal evidence that got translated to research that, you know, shows it to be very efficacious. But if, be aware that it's very limiting because there isn't, you know, there hasn't been an abundance of money to do a, an abundance of research. So we're talking about the largest studies that have been published, uh, funded by the uh, places, you know, uh, companies like MAPS, the Hefter Institute, the Beckley Institute. So based on larger studies, we're, we, we know that PTSD, chronic depression, and existential anxiety around dying are things that lend themselves to psychedelic-assisted therapy. Also, addictions are something that can be treated with LSD and psilocybin. Um, Ibogaine, which is a drug, uh, which is actually a, a plant uh, that grows in equatorial uh, Africa, has been used to treat uh, opiate addiction uh, very successfully, but in the United States, uh, it's a schedule one. So, um, and then one of the things I have to say is Bill Wilson, the founder of AA, was very familiar with LSD, and he wanted to bring LSD into the uh, AA umbrella to treat uh, alcoholism, but the very organization that he founded, they're very against, uh, many of them are very against any kind of drugs, including um, you know, things like methadone that help with uh, uh, addiction. So they shut it down. So, I mean, at this point, I would say that, and I mean, there's been some other studies, but the big ones kind of focus on uh, treating uh, PTSD, uh, depression, uh, you know, again, again, the existential around dying, that is not exact, exactly a mental uh, condition, but in many ways it is because that is the ultimate trip. Um, so there's other possible uses, but the research is not as extensive as that for PTSD, uh, chronic depression, and anxiety around dying. Uh, right now, the rule outs for the research uh, kind of go along the lines of if you have a family history of psychosis, or you yourself have a psychotic disorder, uh, that's a contraindication. Also, if you have a chronic heart condition, because some of the internal journeys that you go through and some of the side effects might cause rapid heartbeat. So that also is a contraindication uh, for research. Uh, in many ways, psychedelics are anti-antipsychotics. So we're not sure how something like that would work for people that have psychotic disorders. And what we had learned from, you know, the 60s and the 70s and, you know, the bad acid trip that was a result of misinformation uh, and the war on drugs, including the, uh, you know, breaking the egg in, in the pan and saying, this is your brain on drugs, which is uh, actually hilarious. Um, I remember that well. I remember yeah, that well. So, so you know had to kind of focus on on things that were, um, what is the correct word? They, they were kind of incurable. So, you know, there's no really good medicine for PTSD. I mean, most of the conventional medicine and treatment, it, it deals with suppression of symptoms, so SSRIs and so forth. So you don't really process that. When you're dying, there's no real good medicine for it other than here's a bunch of opiates and you can just kind of get opiated out and you can that's how you're going to exit. So I think in many ways, the, the the research kind of started with intractable conditions that there was no really good treatment for. And then it turned out the results were so efficacious that they were able to, now we're able to talk about the use of psychedelics 
not for mental health conditions, but uh, to help with wellness, to help you be more well, that these experiences, this hero's journey that you go through when you are under the influence of these very powerful medicines, when you come out the other end, you and you can end up having a lot of insight and being a much more grounded, spiritual, emotionally, uh, and otherwise person. So, um, so you know, I mean, stay tuned as as this is starting to roll, and MDMA uh, should be approved this year, and the government is going to have to decide how they're going to deal with the scheduling. I think that's going to open up, and it already has opened up the possibility of more funding. There's companies now that are interested in it that are on, you know, that are publicly funded. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of starting to flip now because people are starting to understand that th that this is misinformation, that, you know, the, you know, this is your mind on drugs and all this other nonsense. Uh, you know, I can remember one of the more ridiculous uh, articles when I was uh, younger and the war on drugs was starting. There was this article about people that had stared at the sun under the influence of LSD to have a conversation with the sun and burn their retinas. And it turned out that that was a lie. And so what, you know, some of the things that were happening with some of what was reported when when the shift changed was was outright misinformation and lying that caused people to think that this is stuff that could make you uh crazy, could make you uh do things that uh you wouldn't necessarily do. Now, that's not to say that under the influence of a very strong psychedelic, you should be doing things like driving or walking on, you know, walking around and so forth. Uh, so it, it has to be in a controlled setting because that's what we're talking about. Uh, and, you know, I think that the, the time will come in the future and it already has in some uh, places uh, where the recreational use uh, is uh, been uh, decriminalized or legalized. So. Thank you, Bruce. So what I'm hearing is there's a lot of positive things that can happen. It's not for everybody. Um, be careful of listening to misinformation um, and consult with your, you know, it's not for everyone and consult just like anything. Um, not one type of therapy or treatment works for everybody is do your research, talk to your, your doctors and um, look out for misinformation. Yes, and we're right. Something oh, else too before, because what you said just reminded me to say this, is that I think it's changing now, but most doctors have not been trained in the medicinal use of psychedelics. So, you know, if you look at, you know, what they were taught, it was, you know, this is a drug of addiction, the possibility of, you know, all these side effects, but not not talking about uh, the, the possible benefits of it. So I think that's starting to change now. And as part of uh, teaching future doctors now, you know, these studies and a different way of looking at psychedelics now become part of their education, which is uh, much needed because there's, again, you know, if, if, if you ask your doctor who has no, uh, infor no, you know, accurate information about the, the use of psychedelics as medicine, uh, you're going to get a very negative answer. Right. Where and is it legal? Oh, I'm sorry, Julie, I interrupted you. I was just wondering, and, and then you take it away, but where is it legal right now? So I, I, I did some research and looked at, and this is a partial list, and I'm trying to be extremely accurate because uh, I, I think that is the very important. So Oregon, for example, uh, mushrooms are legal for medicinal purposes. 
Uh, Colorado has decriminalized the possession and use of psychedelic plants and fungi and will eventually allow state licensed treatment centers to administer the compounds of psychedelic plants and fungi, that is, uh, you know, magic mushrooms. Uh, Somerville, Northampton, and Cambridge, Massachusetts decriminalized the possession, the use, and propagation of psychedelic plants and fungi. Uh, Washington passed an act exploring the use of uh, psilocybin. Seattle has de deprioritized the enforcement and decriminalization of psilocybin. Oakland, San Francisco, and Santa Cruz, California have decriminalized and deprioritized the enforcement of laws regulating the use and possession uh, of psychedelic plants and fungi. Washington, D.C. decriminalized and deprioritized the enforcement of laws regulating the possession and use of psychedelic plants and fungi. And Ann Arbor, Michigan, deprioritized, decriminalized psilocybin. Uh, Illinois has uh, House Bill 1, uh, which is uh, has not been voted on yet, known as the Illinois Cure Act, which would set up a system of psilocybin administration by trained facilitators in approved facilities. And just also to be aware, almost 20 countries around the world, including Portugal, the Czech Republic, and Spain, have expressly or effectively decriminalized the personal use of all psychedelic substances. Thank wow. you. I'm wondering if you can explain to us a bit about um, the diff the different kind of psychedelics, I guess, like mushrooms, psilocybin, MDMA, what differentiates them? Well, you know, I'm just going to, because it's a, a kind of com more complicated to get into than uh, in the podcast, but, um, you know, we can talk about traditional psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin, which uh, are serotonergic hallucinogens. They mimic serotonin. So let's just talk about the drugs that are being researched. So that's in a different class than MDMA, which is in kind of a different class of psychedelics. As I said, it is, a, it is considered more of an impactogen or an empathogen. It doesn't have of the properties of uh, LSD and psilocybin. And you also have, you know, there's actually, if, if you really look at it, uh, I had the distinct honor and opportunity to spend time with, uh, a, with a gentleman that was known as the godfather of MDMA, uh, Dr. Alexander Shuljan, who is known as Sasha Shuljan. I had gone to a psychedelic conference in Costa Rica and he was lecturing to us uh, and he has two books out uh, called Pickle and Tickle, Phil and Thelamines I Have Known and Loved and Tryptamines I Have Known and Loved. And uh, at, at the time of the lecture, which was uh, a while ago, he said there were over 300 synthetic psychedelics out there that are, have been created, you know, over time. So uh, there's, there's a lot out there, uh, you know, on the street, not just some of the ones that are well known. Okay. And, and you mentioned that a lot of the research was, I mean, it, it, it costs a lot and it was not funded by the government. So in the, now... in the, in the resurgence, initially a lot of it was, and the irony was that some of the funding by the government was even through the CIA, they would have these foundations that did research so they could, they were very interested uh, in psychedelic use for mind control. So there was some surreptitious funding of psychedelics back in those days and some straight on government funding. And then when the war on drugs and the scheduling started, all that stuff, all of that stopped. 
and now it's changing again. Uh, it you know for all the good reasons because the research is proving that they were wrong, and it, it'll be interesting kind of philosophically because the government will have to admit that the war on drugs was wrong and based on uh, not based on science, and so that's going to be something else. How they're going to explain that to people that were brought up? I mean, I run into people, and you uh, you both had said that you remembered you know, those ridiculous commercials, which were trying to scare people into not using drugs uh, with ridiculous uh, analogies and metaphors. Um, so uh, it it's changing now just just because it's it's the understanding of the potential for healing people. You know, the suicide uh, rates are increasing. The opiate overdoses are increasing. And so you have something that in its natural form has been around for a long time and when used in the proper context could provide a lot of healing and save lives. So uh, they recognize that now and uh, are starting to do something about it. So are they, what is the government starting to get into more research into this? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes they are. And, you know, organizations like the Veterans Administration is mm -hmm. now, is, is now looking for research uh, and, uh, I know that uh, the VA is part of the phase three studies on MDMA and PTSD um, that Mike Mithoffer has uh, been heading up a, a friend of mine, a uh, psychiatrist and EMDR uh, psychiatrist. Uh, so um, now that now that entities are aware of the potential, you're starting to see uh, the interest in it spread. Mm -hmm. And when you say... Um... I've heard I've heard you mention phase one, two, and three before. Can you explain to our audience what that means? So there's there the phases to get the drugs out to the public uh, don't happen until you get through phase one, two, and three. And they're wrapping up the phase three studies now, which are, the results are very good for MDMA, which is what I'm speaking to specifically. And then uh, once phase three is wrapped up and the results are in, then they're going to be able to uh, they'll be able to administer to the general public for for prescribed conditions. So and the, the thing that has made it very difficult and why it has taken us so very long and why I put in a plug for organizations like MAPS and Beckley and the Hefter Institute is it costs a lot of money to do phase one to go through phase one through three to be at this point where you're able to. Uh, move this stuff out into uh, the public, uh, and without you know the uh, pharmacy companies uh, putting their money in it. And keep in mind that the pharmaceutical companies are not really interested in something that you might take a couple of times in your entire lifetime and get better. Their model is more about taking medicine every day, not really curing it. And in the case of PTSD and using SSRIs. Uh, it suppresses the symptoms. You don't really end up processing it, um, you know. And I and we'll talk in a little bit about how that uh, therapy looks like. Uh, so that that has been something that has uh, has had to be overcome because of the tremendous amount of money necessary to have studies all over, you know, the country in various locations with uh, with a significant number of people partaking in it. That's a very costly endeavor. So it has taken a long time chugging along to get to this point. And uh, people like myself and my colleagues, the psychedelic elders, uh, learned a lot from what happened the first time. 
and how it went off the rails and uh, nobody uh, is going to do anything that's going to put anything in jeopardy, uh, you know, like like the wild 60s and the 70s, you know, the Timothy Leary uh, turn on, tune in, drop out kind of things that really upset uh, the establishment and the government and uh, uh, caused a lot of uh, unfortunate blowback on this. So you mentioned something very interesting to me. You talked about the pharmaceutical companies and how they're not a fan of, you know, psychedelics and or taking anything where you take once and and you feel better because there I mean, there's a lot of money in that industry. So let's say, you know, things move forward and, and psychedelics are starting to be approved for the public. Where do you see the 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 pharmaceutical company going well the the thing that makes the this type of administration of psychedelics different is that the it's it's in the treatment itself so you you take the medicine and then you do the work that results in the cure so you do the internal work so again it's not like taking an aspirin for a headache so you know so you can't you can't patent the original psychedelics because you you can't but some of the pharmaceutical companies now are starting to tweak the molecules and getting a patent on it. Case in point, uh, esketamine, which is, you know, they kind of tweaked, and I'm not a chemist, so uh, if anybody is listening to that's a chemist, uh, excuse me if I'm not being accurate, but they tweaked the ketamine molecule so they could patent it. And then they now have esketamine, which is used in treatment for treatment-resistant depression, in addition to Ketamine itself, which is used uh, in IV infusions and uh, in a lozenge form, uh, you know, as as a Schedule Three, it's it's uh, it's readily available for treatment. So, so the pharmaceutical companies are trying to figure out what to do, how to tweak the molecules, how to patent it. And I can't think of the name of the company right now, but there's one that came up and tweaked, I believe, the psilocybin molecule, uh, and so they have a patent on it. And so now they're going to make money on it because they own the patent on it. And it's kind of unfortunate because it um, it kind of shows what the uh, the emphasis is on, obviously, uh, on the profits. Uh, and, you know, they're not interested in something that uh, is not going to make them a lot of money. I mean, in case in point that I'll use an example of that that I'm familiar with um, is a, f- a friend of mine. Uh, started uh, Cluster Busters, which is an organization that deals with cluster headaches, which are also known as suicide headaches. They they make migraine headaches look like child's play, and people take their lives because it's so painful. Uh, and they were doing research, and you can add, uh, I believe it's, uh, again, I'm not a chemist, a bromide molecule onto LSD, and it makes it non-psychoactive. Because uh, what he had found was that serotonergic hallucinogens, that is LSD and uh, magic mushrooms, can abort or prevent uh, or mitigate uh, the cluster headaches. So finding something that you could take that wasn't psychoactive and then pitching it to the pharmaceutical companies, they were not interested at all. Not interested. Mm-hmm. Again, because this is something that you don't take every day for your life. Is something you might use a couple times a year uh, in the case of cluster headaches. So again, they weren't interested in that. They're not interested in anything that doesn't make money. And I, I get it, but um, w- you know what happens, and, and we've seen this, and this is what we're talking about, 
the fact that for the last, you know, since the war on drugs started in the 70s, all these decades uh, of not being able to use uh, these medicines to help people has been prevented. Hmm. Okay. And another question is, can you give us an example of how, how psychedelic therapy would work practically in a session? Sure. Sure. So let, let's talk about MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, and, and I'll kind of go through it point by point. Okay. So the, the basic premise of this treatment is that the therapeutic effect is not simply due to the physiological effects of the medicine, and this is what I referred to earlier, it's the result of the interaction between the effects of the medicine, the therapeutic setting and the mindsets of both the participant, key word is a participant, not client, uh, and the therapist. So the therapists are trained in their experience. They, uh, they, uh, they have also experienced what MDMA feels like. The participants are prepared and oriented to the therapy because it is an altered state of consciousness. Uh, there is a use of eye shades and music that mirrors the state of alteration. So the music that you, so the participants are in a relaxed setting with headphones on with music that guides the, the trip. And it starts out kind of slow. And then as the medicine starts to take effect, the music starts to kind of rise and get more you know, of a crescendo. Uh, and then as the session tapers off and you start coming back to consensual reality, uh, the music also mirrors that. So the setting is, is non-clinical. It's warm and inviting. There's a male and a female therapist, the uh, dyads there, but they're there as facilitators. They're not there in the, conven in the conventional sense of somebody telling you what to think or, or you know, a kind of a therapeutic modality. It's a non-directive approach. Uh, based on empathic rapport and uh, and presence to support the unfolding experience and the body's own healing process. So one of the things in, in MDMA, uh, if you read the protocol, because uh, there is a manual online for it that was uh, was written with the uh, researchers, including uh, Dr. Mithoffer, his wife, uh, and uh, the MAPS people and researchers, is you're tapping into an inner healing intelligence that this is facilitating. So the therapists balance their responsibilities as facilitators and as non-invasive empathic witnesses. So the therapy embraces the process of uh, processing of trauma rather than avoiding it. So it that you're taught to confront um, the trauma rather than run from it. You you know, uh, Anne Shuljan, Sasha's wife, talked about confronting the dark side of your personality and not to run from it. And you're taught that when, if something very upsetting uh, is presented to you when you're under the influence of these medicines, you don't try to avoid it. You confront it directly because the way to, the way to get better is to go through that experience. So the, the the therapist then, again, maximize the benefits of the in inner experience catalyzed by MDMA, while at the same time ensuring that the participant is safe and not re-traumatized by internal conflicts. Uh, there's use of various tools such as music, focused body work, breathing, or other techniques that evoke and support the emotional experience. And then the other key thing is there the aftercare 
the integration is very important. And that was one of the things that, you know, took that didn't take place when people were using it recreationally and ended up in a space that they couldn't explain. And they had a hard time integrating that into their life and into their own, uh, you know, you know, internal dynamics. So the key thing uh, after the sessions is to do integrative sessions uh, where you can reflect and integrate that and and make a very uh, substantial, can make very substantial behavioral changes. Um, you know, oftentimes uh, the insights people get while under the influence of psychedelics um, can change them uh, um, immediately. The, the interesting thing is that what the research shows, the most current uh, readings that, that I've read, the research shows that, and this is really key, is psychedelics reopen critical periods for social learning when participants are more sensitive to signals from their environment. So this perspective allows them to change the way they look at things, oftentimes changing misperceptions and rigid maladaptive thinking. So it reopens that critical thinking you know, psychedelics, uh, you know, we talk about brain plasticity, it can facilitate that in, in a way that has heretofore been unknown. And that's one of the things that uh, ketamine does in, uh, in ketamine-assisted therapy. Uh, and uh, one of the metaphors I like to use, and I didn't come up with it, uh, is it's kind of like shaking the snow globe. And then things can settle a little differently than before. You know when you when you took the snow globe and then you shook it up, so that's what psychedelics can do. It shakes up the snow globe, reopens critical period, and then you can relearn things. Oftentimes, under the influence of MDMA, people realize that the things that traumatized them they had no control over. Uh, there's some very powerful videos circulating out there. One that I show in my face-to-face uh, -face presentations uh, was a uh, was a presentation, uh, an episode of Sunday morning uh, on CBS on channel two. Uh, and they had interviewed uh, servicemen that were uh, were traumatized and had a life that they were trying to ameliorate their symptoms to uh, avoid the PTSD by drinking, uh, having a lot of behavioral issues. And then when they partook in the, uh, in the actual therapy, they realized that they had an insight into the fact that in, in one case in specific, as an example, uh, the one of the people that they were focused on, uh, he saw his friend burned to death in a Humvee, and he it was so hot and flames that he couldn't go in there and drag him out. So he blamed himself for his entire life for not being able to save his friend's life. But then under the influence, when you're doing that internal, uh, you know, memory is not like opening up a file cabinet and pulling out the file and reading it, you know, memories uh, can be, uh, I don't want to use the word influence, but they can be reconfigured by interpreting it in a different way. So under the influence of MDMA, he realized there was nothing he could do about it and it wasn't, it wasn't his fault. And then he was able to get on with his life, didn't meet the criteria for PTSD anymore and was getting on with his life. So it is, it is an incredible medicine that you know needs to be needs to be available to people that are suffering and taking their lives to stop the pain because that's what it's about and that's what I'm lecturing about. I'm very passionate about it. I've been in the field and it's all about relieving emotional pain. People shouldn't have to 
you know, you, it's my understanding that, for instance, uh, a an infusion of ketamine can reduce suicide ideation in hours. So that should be something available to people that are that have active suicide ideation. If you can't make people feel better, then they're going to continue to take their lives, continue to to abuse substances to make themselves feel better. It's all about homeostasis. So I mean, it. I always get excited, and I've never not been excited since day one uh, when when uh, it crossed my mind about the possibility of psychedelics, about how this can be a life-changing experience. So what I'm understanding is in a psychedelic therapy, therapeutic setting, there is a male and a female therapist, and the participant is in a relaxed state, relaxed setting with shades on, with music on, and they're kind of going through their trip. Yes. And the the therapists are are there to for I guess moral support almost. That's what it's sounding like for me. Um well they're guides. I mean uh-huh. what we we went back to the indigenous use of psychedelic psychedelic plants where there was a shaman that was, you know, was, was there. And so it, they're there as facilitators. So you do the work. The thing that makes psychedelic uh, assisted therapy so powerful is the, the participant does the work and the diet, the male and female diet are there when you get in trouble. So if you're at a point that you're experiencing a lot of emotional trauma, turmoil uh, internally, you take the eye shades off, take the headphones off, and then the therapists are there, the trained therapists are there to help guide you through that experience. So they're more facilitators, they're more guides. The person is doing the work, you're just trying to keep them on the track to their own healing, which they're capable of doing. Got it. And I'm assuming this process can take a long time, right? Because traditional therapy, you know, it's like an hour, once a week, but I'm assuming this might be a bit different. Well, you know what is the thing to remember is that traditional therapy, the session is an hour. Right. But the therapy can go on for years, right? Yes. Decades, right? Psychoanalytic therapy can go on for decades. So, the you know, so comparing a 50 minute, you know, a 60 minute session with something that takes place in an afternoon, you have to remember that the 60 minute session is going to be spread out over a longer period of time. The protocol for MDMA-assisted therapy in the research so far has been three sessions, resulting in, in relief in you know 60 something 66 percent of people not no longer meeting the criteria for for PTSD in three sessions, and they're looking to see if it could be in two sessions. So if you look at a session that takes all afternoon, you also have to include the preparation and the integration. And, and then compare that on a timeline to therapy that could go on for a decade, it's really not that long. Mm, okay. Okay. And so do you, do you believe that this is where the future of therapy is going? Well, I think that it'll be nice to have this as a, a, a tool, an additional tool in our arsenal. Uh, Cause it's not for everybody. Some people don't just like medicine. Some people do not react well to uh, psychedelic assisted therapy. 
So I think, uh, you know, the thing that makes it so different, um, I mean, not that there aren't, aren't other modalities that don't embrace that EMDR comes to mind when I think about that, where you are uh, kind of geared to using your own inner healing to heal yourself uh, under the influence of these medicines. So um, it, 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 I, I see that as a, an option. Uh, and I think that it could be a very quick option for people that are in, you know, in a lot of uh, turmoil, a lot of trauma, you know, experiencing PTSD and uh, not not being able to feel better about it. So I, I think it should be available. I think that this is going to kind of turn therapy, you know, upside down a little bit because, you know, you're not the all omniscient, all-knowing therapist. You're there as a facilitator, and you, the person that you're working with, the participant, uh, is the one that can heal himself. And you're just there when they get stuck. You may have to; they may have to get up and start moving. You know, I uh, spoke with uh, Dr. Midhoffer. Uh, he came to Chicago for a trauma conference, and and I uh, had dinner with him. Uh, and he said sometimes uh, the people, you know, that when they get stuck, they'll they'll take off their eye shades and headphones and they'll they'll move because trauma PTSD is all about kind of like freezing of both the emotions and kind of being locked in that you know uh, fight or flight stage and so a lot of times people will get relief by movement and then go back to finishing the session so I think that it, it you know even as a modality some of the things that we'll learn as a side effect to psychedelic therapy can be applicable to other forms of therapy um, that could be very efficacious also. Okay, thank you so much. This has been fascinating, Bruce, and just thank you for letting us pick your brain about, about um, this important um, topic. What advice, we're just going to close out with two last sure. questions. What advice do you have for therapists or listeners who are interested in getting involved or learning more? Where do you even start? Well, first of all, be aware that ketamine-assisted therapy is legal. Ketamine is a Schedule Three, So there's a lot of ketamine clinics, uh, you know, and uh, out there. So you can get involved with ketamine clinics because it's, again, a Schedule Three and it's legal. Uh, I would say also support, you know, some of the organizations that have funded the research that brought us to this point, MAPS, the Hefter Research Institute, uh, and the Beckley uh, Institute. So, I mean, if you're interested, I mean, the quick way to learn is to go to maps.org, uh, and th there's a lot of information about that. And, you know, the state of Illinois, if they pass House Bill 1, uh, then we're going to be looking at psilocybin, psilocybin being available to the public. So I would say to stay tuned, continue to watch the research. Um, I've spoken with legislators now that are very interested and understand the potential uh, and uh, are uh, have backed the bill. Uh, so uh, I, I would say just read the research. If you want some practical experience and you're in the field, you might see about working in a, in a ketamine clinic and learn about that. Uh, and so just kind of familiarize yourself and wait for the time uh, when it becomes legally available, because the, th the thing you certainly don't want to happen is a replay of the 60s and the 70s where people are doing things in unsupervised settings and having disastrous results because they're not following the protocol. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And just as far as you and your wisdom and your research, is there a way that people, our listeners could connect with you if they had a question or follow your research or work? Yeah, you know what is I would say, uh, you know, I have a website. So if you just Google my name, I've, a lot of the I don't have published papers in peer peer reviewed journals, but I've written a lot on psychedelics. And um, as part of when I was rolling out the class that I taught at COD, I would I brought in some of the um, keynote people to do uh, presentations. So if you Google my name, uh, many of the YouTube COD converted uh, those presentations to YouTube videos, so you can also watch watch them. Uh, and of course, I'll be spreading the word with the uh, with your podcast. I, I really appreciate being part of it uh, because you know every bit of correct information uh, that gets out there, somebody that is suffering uh, might see that there's hope out there and just hang on. Thank you, Bruce and Julie. Thank you for being my awesome co-host. Um, yeah. And um, we will see you all again soon. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye.